Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, chapter 21. I need you to get there in a hurry because I want you to help me with this opening uh, point of focus. John, chapter 21. If you're not sure where that is, go to the book of Acts and turn back one page, and that'll get you there. Um, When I was a kid, my father was preaching a sermon one day, and I was sort of listening which was, that in itself was something of a miracle, because normally I didn't listen at all. But uh, he he did something that day that caught my attention, and it stuck with me for many years now. And I want to help you kind of get into that, and just I, because most of you are going to do this anyway when I start explaining it, let's just do it here. Take your thumb and hold it out in front of you like this. And I know some of you are looking at me going, oh, come on, preacher, this is... Just work with me for a second. Hold it out there. Now hold it down far enough where, it's, where you're looking at it and it's below the seat back in front of you. What I really don't want is for you to be looking at the back of somebody's head. Now, my dad in his sermon said that focus is such an important part of how we function and it is so powerful in our lives that you can focus on something to the point that you lose perception of whatever else is going on around you. And so he said, if you take your thumb and you hold it out like that and you just stare at your thumb and you do that long enough, then you'll begin. By the way, if you could see from up here what I'm seeing out there, this is great. Uh, You can stare at your thumb for so long that you'll lose everything else behind it and around it and all you'll see is your thumb. So on target was he with that that I remember vividly that thumb illustration and I couldn't tell you if my life depended on it what he was preaching about that day. And so now I know that some of you for the rest of this time that we have here, the next three hours, you're going <laughs> to... See, you weren't that focused, were you? You're going to be <laughs> staring at your thumb and I'll see it when you're... And I'll start laughing and we'll be okay. All right, so here's what I want you to get from that. Focus is incredibly powerful in our lives. But it's also incredibly dangerous. We can get so focused on stuff. It can be any number of things. It can be our finances. It can be our future. It can be our education. It can be future mates. It can be anything in life. You can get so focused that everything else loses its depth in your life. So it's powerful, but it's dangerous because if you get focused on the wrong things, then you're going to miss the basic elements of life. So what I want to do today is talk to us a little bit about focus as it relates to us as individual people first, but also as it relates to us as a church. Now, one of the things that I uh, have made it a practice in doing over the years is to take these, the holiday period that we just came through uh, because, for the most part, church work kind of slows down a little bit and there's you know, not as many meetings and not as many demands and that kind of thing. And so I use the holiday period often as a time for evaluation. And I do that on a personal level and I also do that on the church level. And it's even more noteworthy for me this year because the last day of January, I finished my sixth month here as your pastor. And so for six months, we've been hard at it and nose to the grindstone kind of thing and 
one of the things that happens is you get so caught up in those things that you sometimes fail to stay, take a step back and look at the big picture. And so it was a good time for me to do that. And so over the last several weeks, I've been doing some evaluations personally and church-wide, and, and it caused me to reflect on some of what's happened. So let me just share a couple of things. This is, uh, I guess for a moment, I'll do a state of the church address for you. It's a good time for us to do that as we face a new year and go into it. And we're going to be busy starting, oh, probably in about 35 minutes when I have another committee meeting. So before we get locked up in the busyness of church business, or for you individually, before you get too locked up in the new stuff of the new year, let's take a moment, stop, and take stock. When I first got here six months ago, uh, one of the things that confronted me immediately was the reality that Crestwood was not a church, but rather really two churches. Now that was tied, and most of you have heard me talk about that, that was tied to the fact that we had an early service that meets at 8.30, and we have this service that meets at 11. And for the most part, the uh, people who attend each service are pretty well set in that. And there's very little, as far as the church was concerned, where we came together. And I consider that to be something of a problem. Now, the good part of that is that we're not a split church, okay? As far as I can tell, there's no fighting going on or anything like that. By the way, that's a good time for an amen right there, all right? Because you get a church that spends all their energies fighting, then they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I don't see that in Crestwood. I don't think that we're a split church, but we were two churches in that we just kind of both services did our thing. And so one of the things that we started trying to do immediately was to put some things in place for us as a church where we were forced to come together. And one of the ways we do that is on our, uh, what we've come to call our Crestwood Family Celebration Day. Every month that has five Sundays, typically in a year there's four of those, uh, which means every three months, on the fifth Sunday of that month that has five Sundays, we'll come together in a single service. We won't do two that day. We come together. We don't do Sunday school that day. We eat lunch on, not on the ground, but on the grounds together. And we just come and we celebrate the fact that we are a church. That's a good thing. It's one of the things we started because I came in and saw this, and we got two churches. We need to do something about it. Started talking about it. Leadership says we do need to do something about that. We also started a Sunday evening Bible study where we meet around tables. And my desire in that was to kind of force us to people that we don't normally see. Because at Sunday night, we don't have two services. Just one, people come together. My point in all of this is we've done some things to kind of force us to come together as a church. Another thing that I encountered immediately when I got here, I think actually not immediately, but within the first two hours on my first day in the office, I was confronted with the fact that we have, well, let me, the best, well, I, I have come to call it this way, there are landmines across the landscape of Crestwood family life. And they're tied to very little structure for us as a church. Uh, I could give you all the background on how this came about, but let me just kind of cut to the chase and say we needed some documents as a church that helped us to identify who we were first and how we function secondly. Now, we call those constitution and bylaws. We also need a whole review and overhaul, actually, development of policies, procedures, those kind of things. Crestwood, to be the size that it is, 
having very little, if any, of those kind of documents was an accident waiting to happen on an organizational scale. And so we started into that. And since roughly, I don't know, Spencer, maybe you can help me, um, first part of September, maybe we started meeting Constitution and Bylaw Revision Committee. That sound about right. Um, we put together a group of people to help us as a church settle in, okay, a constitution that says this is who we are. We sort of had one of those, but it wasn't enough of one of those that anybody even knew where it was, much less what it said. And so we just started the process to say we need to decide who we are as a church. Now that constitution, one of the reasons I'm getting into all of this, is to let you know that constitution and bylaw revision committee has been working almost weekly since roughly the 1st of September. And now we have a constitution that we have put out, a proposed constitution. We put it out in November. We're putting it out again today. Some of you already got a copy in Sunday school. There's copies at the back. We want you to read over that. We want you to ask questions about it. And next Sunday night, instead of a Bible study, we will do a discussion about that constitution that is being proposed. And then the following Sunday night at our normal business meeting, we'll have the first of two votes about whether or not we will adopt that constitution as a statement of who we are as a church. Now, that may seem like no big deal to you, but it's a big deal because as a church, we need to be able to say, this is who we are. Now, the next stage of that, and that committee, the same committee is still working hard to put a bunch of bylaws together. So that we can not just say, okay, this is who we are, but we can say, okay, this is how we do things. And so that bylaw is still in process, and hopefully we'll have those to you within a couple of months. And we'll be able to act on those as a church. Now, all of that, I want you to hear, I know that some of you sitting out there going, surely I didn't come to church to hear this today. But let me come back to the focus thing for a second. In my evaluations of the last six months, one of the things that I found as I sat in my living room with no meeting to go to was this. I'm tired. And I started thinking, why am I so tired? And the answer is because I've been going to 10 million meetings a week. That's why. But the meetings have been specifically designed to help us get the structure stuff so that we can move forward. Hear me say this. The structure is not the end game for us as a church. It would be easy for us to do that. A lot of churches do that. They get so focused in on the structure of how they do things and making sure that the machinery works right that they fail to remember what the purpose of the machinery was in the first place. And so what we found, I think, at Crestwood when I got here was a church that was operating as if it had about 100 people and the reality was that it had about 600 people. And so what that meant was our focus was scattered. What do you do with that? Well, one of the things that I do with that, and the reason I'm doing all of this time at the beginning of this message today, is to help us make sure that we go from today, not focused on the past, not focused on building machinery, but focused in the future. We have a whole year that waits in front of us. You as an individual, we as a church, what will we do with the time that we have? What governs where we go? In other words, where's our focus? 
Look at your Bibles, John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. Matter of fact, I suspect that as I start reading, some of us will be able to quote major portions of it. But I'll just read it anyway, and you follow along. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Now, by the way, this is a post-resurrection experience. Jesus is appearing with the disciples. He's doing things with them. It's before he goes back to heaven. But in this process, you can go back and read chapter 21, first 14 verses. Verse 15, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he, that is Simon Peter, said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, now wait a minute, um, this is a good time to kind of put yourself into the story. All right? I want you to put yourself as best you can into the shoes of Simon Peter. Jesus has asked you this question, do you love me? And your response is, of course I do. So Jesus now comes the second time. I want you to feel the emotions that Simon Peter must have been feeling. Let, uh, first time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, is, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, well, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I want to stop reading there and come back to a couple of things. As we go together, well, let me back off of that for a second. What I want you to do today from this point forward is I want you to hear with two ears what I'm saying. All right, With one ear, I want you to hear on a personal level. How does this apply to me, preacher? And with the other ear, I want you to hear on the corporate level, and that is how does this apply to us as a church? Okay, Because what I want us to do today is to gain some focus that is exactly on target for where God's trying to take us. But we can't do that together as a body unless we first do that as individual Christians. So where is it that God wants us to go? Let's look at this passage, and let me give you a couple of suggestions for focus. The first one is that we need, and now let me rephrase that, we must have our priorities right. Look at verses 15 through 17 again. Three different times, Jesus asked Simon Peter a question. What's the question? Do you love me? Simple question. 
Well, not really. It's not as simple as we might want to make it. As a matter of fact, the key in this, there's one, really two keys. I'm going to talk about one of them. It's the word love. The other key is what Jesus means when he says more than these. It's a comparative kind of question. Do you love me more than these? And scholars are all over the map about what these Jesus is referring to. But I want to focus in on the word love here today because we're talking about focus. We're talking about priorities. And Jesus gives us a statement and Simon Peter answers the wrong question. Well, it's not that he answers the wrong question as much as that he answers in the wrong way. Jesus asked him specifically, do you... Now, the word love here is the Greek term agape. It's a word, a lo, uh, it's the word that is used for love that is an investment. I can say to you, I love bluebell ice cream. Now, does that communicate to you? Hello? All right, you can look at me and never mind. I love bluebell ice cream. Now, I don't love it enough that I'm willing to rob a store to get it. So how much do I love it? The word love in the divine sense, the word agape... By the way, it's not only used in a divine sense, but that's the way the New Testament typically uses it. It is a word that points to the deepest kind of love. It is an investment in the person. It's the word that God uses to talk about how he feels about us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Now, do you want God to love you at the level that I love bluebell ice cream? Because I can take it or leave it, to be honest with you. No, I need a deeper love from God than that. I love my children. Do you think I love my children the way I love bluebell ice cream? Be careful how you answer that. And the answer is, which child are you talking about? No, no, that's not right. Now, what I'm trying to do is get you to see in English, we use love in a lot of different ways. I love coming to church here. I do. Our musicians, by the way, y'all are doing an awesome job. I appreciate so much the way you take us to worship through music every week. I love coming to church here. That's a different kind of love than Bluebell ice cream. I can promise you, I can take or leave Bluebell. I need what we get when we come to church here. Love in the divine sense. Jesus says to Simon Peter, do you love me? Agape is the word there. Simon Peter uses a different term. He uses the same word for love that comes out of Greek into English, and it's the reason that we call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. It's a, the word is phileo, and it means to love. It's, um, what's the best? It's an affinity towards. It's good feelings toward. Right, let's put it this way. I understand there's a football game tomorrow. Anybody aware of that? Now, two different junior high schools are going to be playing tomorrow night. No, okay. LSU, Alabama. It's no accident that I find some of the main protagonists about these two teams are sitting on opposite sides of the church this morning. I happen to know that in this church, 
We have people, maybe equally split, I'm not really sure about that, but we have fans for LSU and we have fans for Alabama, right? Yeah, now that was a weak right because I know how this is. I've watched you. Fans, right? That's a good definition for phileo as Simon Peter uses it. Jesus says, I'm going to put it in my terms now, Simon, do you love me at the point of being fully invested in me? And Simon Peter answers, now God, Jesus, you know I'm your biggest fan. You see why Jesus asked him a second time? Before we get to the second time, let's make sure we all get it the first time. This moment, Jesus says to you, do you love me? How do you feel about me? And most Christians in most churches, I'm afraid, would have to answer if they were being honest, oh, I'm a big fan, Jesus. I love the way you make me feel when certain songs are played. I love the fact that I can treat you like a good luck genie and I can rub my Bible and feel better about it because I know that you're out there. But Jesus comes back the second time. But do you love me? Are you fully invested in me? And Simon Peter answers the second time. I told you, Jesus, I'm your biggest fan. My fear is that churches across America today are full of fans of Jesus Christ. And we'll sit and we'll cheer. Rah, rah, go Jesus. But when it comes to being fully invested, he's just another part of our lives. And we come back to focus. Where is your life focused today? What part does Christ play in your life? I'm not talking about whether you can quote Scripture or not. I'm not talking about whether you attend church on a regular basis or not. I'm not talking about any of the trappings of religion. I'm talking about a relationship with the living God, Jesus Christ himself, who says to us every moment of every day, how do you feel about me? For us, as we move forward, we can get all of the trappings of church, all of the mechanization that we've talked about, all of the meetings and all of the planning and all of that stuff that has taken six months of our lives together and justifiably so, but we can take all of that stuff and hold it up and say, look what we've done for you. And Jesus says, but what about me? What do you think about me? It is not about church the machine. It's about a living relationship with a holy God. And so Jesus asked Simon Peter the third time. Oh, but see, it's different this time. This time, Jesus asked Simon, do you love me? And the word love now is the one Simon's been using. <laughs> and you talk about a collective shot to the chops. 
Jesus puts Simon Peter on the stand to testify against himself. Do you love me? Are you invested in me? And Simon Peter says, you know, I'm your biggest fan. So finally Jesus says, okay, are you really my fan? Do you love me more than these? And Simon Peter at this point, I think he breaks. I think he finally gets it. He's grieved that Jesus now for the third time pushes the issue. By the way, we should hear from that. He's not ever going to let you off the hook. You're sitting there today. Some of you are sitting there going, man, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this preacher. He, man, he's, he's being too personal. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is never going to let you off the hook because God loves you so much that he wants a relationship with you and that sin that's part of your life that separates you from him, that's just going to always be in the way and the Holy Spirit will hound you. That's why we hear of the hound of heaven who chases after us because of his great love for us. And so Jesus nails it. Finally, he brings it home. Simon Peter, are you really my biggest fan? Scripture says it grieved him. And then he changes his language. You know that I love you. To this point, Simon Peter's used a word that is a surface-level kind of knowledge. It's just a general term. Lord, Lord, you know. You know. But at this point, the language shifts once again. And he uses the word know now. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew translation from that Old Testament passage that said, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It is an intimate, deep, deepest level kind of knowledge. Simon Peter moves because of Jesus' questioning. He moves off of the nice, comfortable, I'm a fan, everything's cool, and you know that. Now he says in that heart-rendering, exposing kind of statement, Jesus, you know everything about me. You know the answer to the question you're asking. I have to tell you, these are uncomfortable kinds of truths for me. They're uncomfortable for me, first of all, because I have to stand up here and talk about them with you. (laughs) But they're uncomfortable more for me because I have to live with this sermon all week long before you have to hear it. This morning, I was up about 4 o'clock or so. I went into the living room and kind of turned on one lamp so it wasn't excessively bright. And I was just kind of chewing on this passage of Scripture and trying to get ready for this message. In the process of that, I kind of kept rehearsing the question. But it wasn't really for Simon Peter's benefit. Now it's for Mark's benefit. So Jesus says to me, just like he says to you, how do you feel about me? And the church part of me, the preacher part of me, the educated theologically part of me says, well, you know, I'm your biggest fan. Now, okay, now see, I've studied this. So I was smart enough not to use the I'm your biggest fan. Of course I love you, Jesus. Why would you ask me that? And the second time the question comes. Mark, do you really love me? And it forced me 
on a personal level, just like it's forcing you on a personal level right this second to come to grips with just how much of a fan of Jesus I really am. Oh, it's easy to be a fan. I'm, I know all about being a frustrated fan. I like the Cowboys. Well, I used to until last Sunday. But you, isn't that the way fans are? As long as it's basically okay and there's hope, well, I'm a fan. But even some of us are diehard Cowboys fans. Jesus doesn't need any more fans. He got churches full of fans. What he's looking for is disciples. Do you notice what he says? Three different times to Simon Peter. One a play on the other. Feed my sheep. Fans don't typically get in the game. Oh, hello. There are going to be people all across America tomorrow. I'll be one of them. Fans of the game. And we'll sit in our living rooms and we'll throw Cokes at the TV screen because we're frustrated with our team. But not a single one of us is going to wake up sore the next morning from getting hit by some of those animals on the front lines of both of those two teams. Because we don't get in the game. We're just fans. What Jesus is doing with Simon Peter at this point is he's totally changing what it's been for him. See, for the, to this point, Simon Peter has been one of his disciples, one of his, literally, followers, learners. But Jesus is getting ready to go back to heaven. And he's going to leave this cause called Christianity in the hands of these common, ordinary fishermen. And so he says to Simon Peter, Hey man, this game changes now. Do you love me? Are you a fan? Or are you going to get plugged in? From this point forward, Simon Peter will take the mantle of the leader of this group of people. We're going to find in just a few chapters after this, you get in the book of Acts, by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, Simon Peter's under arrest because of what he believes. Under arrest by the same people who killed Jesus. You think that's a little intimidating? What was it that made him stand up to that? And I would argue that you can find in Acts chapter 4 a statement that says, and those other people, the ones who arrested them, took note of these disciples that they had been with Jesus. Just ignorant, untrained people, and yet they could not deny that they had been disciples of Jesus Christ. And this passage of Scripture is the turning point for Simon Peter. Feed my sheep. Get in the game, in other words. So we come to this. And I want you, again, to go back to the thumb. What is it for you as an individual Christian, as you go into a new year, that needs to be your point of focus? Let me let you off the hook. It doesn't need to be more committee meetings. And we're going to have plenty of those, starting in 10 minutes for me and some of you. But the focus is not the committee meeting. The focus is not the music rehearsal on Wednesday night. The focus is not going to Sunday school or going to church. The focus is, how do you feel about Jesus, really? And we prioritize him in our lives, and then he'll take care of all the other stuff. 
Because what we find is true of Simon Peter is true for us. Jesus specifically says to Simon Peter, this is your plan. Better said, this is my plan for your life. What is God's plan for your life today? I happen to believe that God has a specific plan for every single one of us. Wherever you sit, whatever is going on in your life, it is true. God loves you more than you can even imagine. But he also has a plan for you that involves you plugging in with what he has for you and for us. He cares enough for Simon Peter to let him know what it is. He cares enough for you to let you know what it is. And it comes down to prioritization for us. I'll close with this. Story is told years ago in a college classroom somewhere. A professor was trying to talk about priorities with his students. He's trying to teach them the need to prioritize. And so he decided an object lesson was the best way to do it. So they all got in the classroom, and it's kind of one of those stadium seating kind of classrooms. And he pulled out a jar and he set it on his desk. And uh, he said, we need to put rocks in there. And so he reached underneath his desk and he pulled out these big rocks. It's kind of one of those old gallon milk jugs, you know, with the big wide top on it. And so he took out these big rocks and he put four or five of them in there. And he held it up and he said, how many of you would say that's full? And the whole class, yep, that's full. He said, I can't get any more rocks in there, right? They said, that's right. He said, wrong. And he reached into his desk and he pulled out a bunch of smaller rocks and he started stuffing them into the places there that were left after the big rocks. And so they watched him, and he finished that process, and he held it up. He said, now how many of you say that's full? Well, not everybody said yes, but for the most part, they said, yeah, that's full. He said, I can't get any more rocks in it, right? They said, that's right. He said, wrong. So he reached in, he pulled out gravel, and he poured the gravel down in there, so it started filling the other spots. And so when he finished that process, he said to his class, okay, how many of you say that's full? Now nobody said anything, okay? They've been taken down that road too many times. He said, uh, can I get any more in there? Nobody said anything. He reached in, he pulled out a bag of sand. He poured the sand in there, filled it up to the top. And he said, now how many of you say that's full? Everybody's hand went up. He said, I can't get anything else in there, right? They said, that's right. He said, that's wrong. He pulled out a pitcher of water and he poured the water in there. Filled it up. And then he said this. There is a lesson for us in this. What do you think is the lesson? One of the smart aleck college students, the one who always has the right answer, raised his hand and he said, we can always cram more into what we have than what we thought. That's a typical modern answer. We just keep cramming more into the time that we have. And the professor said, that is a true statement, but it's wrong. The point of this is not that you can cram more into your schedule. The point of this is you better get your big rocks in first before it fills up with stuff. That's true of our lives. You and I only have so much time every day. And we're going to fill it with something. Some of it's going to be healthy. Some of it's going to be unhealthy. Where does God fit into that? And I think what this incident with Jesus and Simon Peter teaches us is that there's one big rock and it better go in first because if you don't, 
get your priorities straight when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, nothing else matters. And you could be so focused on getting an education or making it in business or earning your second million dollars, the first one's already spent. But if you don't have Christ where he belongs and your priorities are not right, it won't matter. And you'll live hell on earth. And worse than that, you'll live hell after earth. And Jesus died so you don't have to do that. Let's pray. So let me just ask you, heads bowed and eyes closed, how do you feel about Jesus this morning? You know that he loves you so much that he came to earth and died on a cross to purchase freedom from sin for you. That's how much he loves you. I didn't ask you how he feels about you. I asked you how you feel about him. If you're here today and you don't know him on a personal level, the first thing I can say to you, the best thing I can say, the priority for your life is that you establish a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's a matter of trust. It's a decision that you make to say, I believe he is who he says he is. I believe that he died. I believe that I need him because of my sin. And I reach out to him in faith and accept the gift of eternal life that he's given. And if that's you today, on a personal level, right there where you sit, you just have a discussion with him through prayer and tell him you need him. I invite you to come forward and when we start this invitation in a moment, we'll talk with you and pray with you about that and help you make sense of all of that. But you don't need me to do that. That's between you and God. And it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I need you in my life. Please save me. If that's your prayer, then I just invite you to come talk to us about it and we'll help you with what that means and how you follow up with that. Many, many of us have long since made the decision to trust Christ for salvation, but we parked him somewhere in our lives since then. And he's kind of like the other side of our thumb thing. He's part of the periphery that we never see or think about. And today he says to you, do you love me? How will you go into this new year? As a church, how will we move forward? He has a plan for us. And Father, we come to you now asking you to complete this message in our hearts. So much pain in this life. We look at ourselves. Can't even bear to think of somebody else because the sin of our own lives is so intense and so real that it just disables us spiritually. We pray that you remind us of how reaching and powerful your love is. May we embrace your grace in Jesus' name.